You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing. And of course, where we also try and do some of your questions. But today, we're going to deviate from our usual format because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely Perry Kaufman, a true trend-following and systematic trading legend and a good friend of of Moritz's as well. So let me start by saying welcome to the show, Perry. It's nice to have you. Oh, thank you. It's just a pleasure to be here. Great. And good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are you doing? Hey, good afternoon, Niels. Hello, Perry. Very nice to have you on the show. I'm doing fine. Sounds good. Now, of course, we will be spending as much time as possible with you, Perry, but uh, Moritz and I would like to just spend a couple of more minutes before we dive into all these wonderful topics, just running through our normal market wrap, so to speak. So if you don't mind, have an extra sip of your coffee while we just uh, do that. So uh, Moritz, uh, how how was your week this week? Uh, you know, Niels, uh, another one of these weeks. You know, repeatedly I've said on this show that it's grinding down in my trend-following trading system, and this past week has been no different. I've lost 78 basis points. Make that 80 basis points. It doesn't really matter. I'm down about 7% year-to-date, and um, had a couple of notable losing positions, still short crude oil. That didn't work that well in the past two days. Uh, short lean hawks. I mean, this this lean hawks market looks like a freight train. It's just going higher and higher and um, very, very close to getting stopped out of that position. So if it continues for another day or two in the, in the fashion that it has in the past couple of days, then that position will be gone before you know it. I'm long the emissions contract, that's the European emissions, uh, and that hurt because they went lower, probably because of concerns around Brexit and, you know, the UK's exit from the European Union and what will happen with their emission rise and how those will hit the market. Yada, yada, yada. So a couple of these and only a, uh, you know, really three winning positions to take note of. Soybeans, soy meal. Really the same as last week. I remember them being very strong in the week before as well. And that's about it. So it's really the soybeans that and the soybean meal uh, market that that kept my portfolio somewhat controlled. Otherwise, it would have been down probably more than 1%. But here we are. It is still um, a tough environment for trend-following trading systems. I think across the board, let's leave the uh, super short-term traders aside for a second. They're doing different things, but the medium to long-term trend-following crowd, in which I include myself, is you know uh, having a, a a bit of a difficult time coming coming out of this out of this bottom, the bottom of the V after the Corona crisis shock. Three more months to go, October, November, December. Let's see uh, what happens. We're not yet at the finish line. Everything can still change. But um, like I say, minus seven, that's the status quo right now. That's the status quo, sure. I mean, on our side, uh, trend following, in terms of our trend following stuff, we were, um, yeah, we were still flat for the month, flat for the week. That's okay, I guess. Volatility-wise, we were up about a percent for the month and uh, sorry for the week, and that brings us back to 
break even for the month of October, but obviously still, uh, you know, still doing very well on the year for for volatility. So from our point of view, it was on the surface a quiet week, but actually when you drill down and you look at some of the sectors, there was quite a bit of movement or varied performance, I should say. Meat, softs, energy, European equities, US fixed income were really the challenging sectors for us. While metals, grains, like you said, U.S. equities, volatility and currencies due to the weaker dollar did pretty well. So, um, you know, it, it feels like we're sort of uh, treading water a bit uh, quiet before the f- storm. And, and of course, we do have, you know, only three weeks or so to the uh, U.S. election. And that's going to be super interesting. As we were just talking about before we uh, hit the record button, I was picking up something from the latest uh, podcast from Macro Voices with uh, Dr. Pippa Malmgren, who just pointed out that people should be aware that there may actually be some demographic changes uh, playing in this uh, this time around due to the COVID crisis and other things that have made quite a few people we know leave uh, New York, but also people leaving California and moving into states like Arizona and Texas, which might change the voter demographics a bit. Enough about that, enough about U.S. elections. Perry, now we really want to talk to you. It's uh, it's great to have you here. You are a very well-known figure in our industry. You've written many books, even though you keep saying you're not going to write another one, but there we are. I hope you keep breaking that promise. Most recently, of course, the sixth edition of the... Um, book trading system and methods. So I think we have a good mix of questions and topics that we want to discuss with you. I also have some from friends of mine in the industry who got very excited when they heard that you're on the the podcast this week. So it's going to be, um, I think, a wide-ranging conversation. And I know Moritz has some great questions uh, as well. So let let me jump into this. You uh, in the book, or at least in 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 the in the yeah in the sixth edition of the book, you write, success in trading is in the ability to see the bigger picture, the shape of the price moves rather than the highly specific pattern. That's why long-term moving averages work. You can mix the price around and still get the same average. Fine tuning was never a good situation. We always return to the idea: loose pants fits everyone. Because we don't know exactly how price moves will develop, we need to build in the flexibility to stay with your strategy uh, through as many challenging scenarios as possible. Tell me... Did I say that? Well, you wrote it. I'm not sure you said it, but you certainly wrote it. So so I'm just curious. Tell us what these words mean to you and how this informs your thinking when you start building a trading system. Yes. Actually, what you've picked out is, is I think, an interesting philosophic approach to anyone that wants to develop a system and trade. The market is, is really very unpredictable in the short term. And so concept of loose pants fits everyone is one of my favorite phrases. And it really means that you can't be very specific about how you define your system, how you constrain it. I like systems that will hold the position through various types of markets. One of the things you have to come to grips with is the amount of risk that you're willing to accept and manage that risk 
in a different way than trying to fine tune the system. So you come up with a moving average system and the longer term trends are the best because they track the fundamentals. And so most of them start with interest rates that the biggest trends are developed by Fed policy. And those, those persist for long periods of time. And so you have that, but it doesn't stop the risk of these large fluctuations because you're holding a position for a long time. So you have to first decide how much risk is there in a system and how are you going to manage that risk? And this comes down to volatility. One of the things that I found most important is to measure the risk, not by the price of the individual markets that you're trading, but by how your system performs with those prices. So you really want to measure the risk on your daily returns or your daily NAVs and not decide on the underlying volatility of of a particular futures market or stock market. Actually, Moritz was responsible for a very big improvement in the work that I've done over the past 15 years, and it was called volatility stabilization. Remember that, Moritz? I do. (laughs) And what it does is it says that we start out by targeting a certain acceptable volatility in our portfolio. And the standard for the industry is about 12%. What that means is you take the last 20 or 30 or 40 days of returns for your program expressed as percentages, and you calculate the volatility, the annualized volatility of your portfolio. And it should target whatever you want, say 12% is is probably the typical fund manager's uh, target. If the volatility goes above 12%, you cut your position to bring it back down. If the volatility goes under 12%, you increase your leverage. It's much easier to do it in futures, harder to do it in stocks. So you're always moving back and forth. You, You don't do it every day. For example, I don't change the volatility of the portfolio unless it moves by 20%. So if my volatility is 12%, it has to go up by 2.4% before I'll bring it back down. That's turned out to be very good. But the surprising outcome is that most of the improvement is done by raising the volatility. What happens is you go through in in a trend-following system, which I'm going to focus on mostly, you go through periods of low volatility in your portfolio. And so even though you've targeted 12% volatility, uh, which, which implies a certain amount of return, you see sometimes the volatility will drop to 8% or even 6%. And at that time, you actually have reduced your return by almost 50%. If you don't bring your volatility back up by increasing the size of your position, you will wind up earning half of what you expect to earn. And so in the long run, your real performance will never match your theoretical performance. So the big gain is raising your portfolio 
to your target volatility rather than reducing it. When you reduce your volatility because because the market has been moving very fast and you're making money and it's going up, what happens, you get to a certain point where the volatility is high and the returns don't justify the volatility. And you'll find that your ratio of risk to return will actually go down because you're you're making a small amount of profit with a high amount of volatility. And it's not actually worth it. So when you reduce your volatility at these high levels, you're not only taking profits, actually, but you are improving your return to risk ratio. Now, I don't know if we've drifted from the question. No, no, I mean, that, no, no I mean, that's <laughs> fine. I mean, we, we were just uh, throwing it out there in terms of how that statement was kind of informing you. And I, I agree with you that risk is is obviously, in a sense, what we really are, right? We, we don't control returns, but we do control risk. So how we think about risk, how we think about managing risk, I mean, vault targeting is kind of another way of thinking about what you describe is something we discuss a lot. So it's important. It's very yes. important. Let me also mention that it's a mistake to try to fine-tune your system to reduce risk. It really doesn't work. Risk is going to pop up no matter what you do, no matter how you control it. It's like our Fed. It, it's like our our government policies in the U.S. where we had a 2008 because of uh, lending practices were, were not so good. And so the government put in regulations to control that. But it doesn't really control that because something else will happen. So... It's like one of those games where you try to push down risk in one place and it pops up in another place. It's always going to pop up. So the idea is to figure out what the real risk is going to be and manage your portfolio so that you don't get wiped out when that happens. Absolutely. Moritz, what's on your mind? Well, thank you now to, to add to what Perry is saying. The, the only thing that we can have a hand on and try to control is the risk as we go into a trade, right? By sizing the position in relation to what we're willing to accept. What we cannot control is the return. The return is something that happens. You know, we cannot impact it with the way that we trade, but we can adjust our risk. And I think this is, you know, one of the most profound building blocks for any type of trading system. I mean, it goes for trend following in the same way it goes for like, you know, cross-sectional momentum or carry or any of the other trading systems that Perry describes in his so many books, by the way, the latest of which I think is Kaufman Constructs Trading Systems, if I have picked that up correctly, even though yes. Perry still owes me a copy, it hasn't arrived by <laughs> mail yet. So I'm... Oh, my God. <laughs> I have okay. all your books, but that one's missing. Okay. Uh, we'll take care of that. But exactly. And there's, you know, it, it is so interesting that, you know, yeah, well, interesting is the right word, because there is no exact definition for risk that everybody will raise their hand and say that's it that's exactly how i measure it that is what risk means to me everybody who trades thinks about risk in a slightly different way or maybe even in a profoundly different way some people use volatility and they equate that with risk right some people then go on and they vol control markets and then even sectors and then the entire portfolio to a certain level of target volatility Niels's firm done. They're using 
nothing that is exactly akin to volatility, ongoing volatility control. It's more like a value at risk type of approach, right? And get other people say, look, I'm taking a position based on a certain average true range and I want to risk an equal amount across all the trades that I'm doing in the portfolio. And once I have them in the portfolio, I just leave them alone because the statistics tell me that, you know, at some point one of them will work and the other doesn't work. So over time, it'll kind of like equal itself out. And all of these are different approaches to position sizing and money management and risk. And it is, you know, we've said this repeatedly, the answer is really in the data and in your head. For you as a trader, you need to figure out what this means for you and how you want to trade and how much heat you're willing to accept with your systems. But it is, I would say, almost step number one. You have to have an idea about, you know, the trading system that you want to trade. Okay, let's say that's trend following, right? But right after that comes kind of like the building block risk. How do you position size and how do you manage risk over time? Well, yes, position sizing is... I think, critical to controlling risk. It's the first step in risk control. And you did mention there are a number of ways people measure that risk. But I think there's a standard way for futures traders, which we have called volatility parity. And first, the big picture. The big picture is that every trade you put on must have the same risk. So we're talking about equal risk. If it doesn't have the same risk, if one trade has greater risk than another trade, then there are two things happening. First, that one trade must make more money than the other trades in order to justify the bigger position. And you need to be able to say that I can predict which of all these trades is going to do better. Otherwise, you're just adding risk to your portfolio and to your, well, your portfolio without any regard for the reward. So if I have a portfolio of stocks or futures markets, I actually rank the performance when I pick which stocks and futures markets I'm going to trade. I don't trade everything. I trade those stocks or those futures markets that are performing best on my system. I believe in persistence. If it's performing best on my system, it will continue to perform best. And it's more obvious in stocks where you have companies like Amazon or Tesla that just run away and just keep going forever. You would think that they couldn't persist like that, but they do. And if you don't participate in those, you're going to be left far behind. In the same way, bonds have been the benchmark for futures markets. Bonds, interest rates or yields have come down in bonds since 1980, with a few periods where they've gone up. If you don't participate in the most trending of the markets, the ones that you that perform best on your system, then you're making a mistake. In the same way, and I, I know I'm diverting slightly, if you have markets that are not doing well on your system, you shouldn't be trading them. I know quite a few large funds that want the diversification, and they add, they add markets that are marginally profitable, and that deteriorates their risk. They want the liquidity 
so that they're not leaving money idle or they've maxed out liquidity in their other markets. My philosophy is you're better not trading and leaving money on the side and just picking the ones that do the best. This is a really, a really, really interesting topic. And, and thanks for bringing that up, Perry, because I think it's on the minds of many traders. Like, what type of markets do you put into a system? And what you're describing is, I mean, we can think about that in many ways. You're essentially saying that markets that have a lot of noise don't lend themselves well for trend-following trading systems because you tend yes. to be stopped out. Correct. But on the other hand, you could say, okay, let's say you have an annual review point, say the end of the year, right? And you could do something, you could do one or two things. You could say, let's look back over the past year, whatever your historical time frame is, and calculate a risk-adjusted return, let's call that a sharp ratio, for the individual underlying market. And then for the following year, select those markets into your market universe for the trading system that have the highest chop ratios and you have like a percentile whatever cutoff point right or you would say i don't do that i do it which have performed best on my trading system which is a different dynamic right it's a different calculation because then you're not looking at the sharp ratio of the individual markets you're looking at the sharp ratio of the market inside your trading system and you continue to go with that okay i need to interrupt you here though sure you're right we are looking at the performance of the stock or futures market under the rules of the trading system that's absolutely correct but we're not looking at the sharp ratio i have found that the more restrictions you put on performance, the worse the future results will be. So the sharp ratio combines the return and the risk. And even though it seems like such a small measurement, I don't think that works. I have tried it. The only thing that works is return, not risk. In other words, you manage the risk with your portfolio leverage overall. But you can't select the stocks or futures markets by the performance of the return of risk. You're putting too many restrictions on the performance. The market will defy what you want. Uh, so I will pick the ones that perform the best in returns only, and I will disregard the risk with one exception. For example, in my stock portfolio, I got rid of Tesla shortly before it turned bad recently, entirely because the annualized volatility of my individual returns on Tesla topped 100%. Now, when you do annualized volatility, I do it over 20 days so that it's a very small sample and you can get these distortions of more than 100% volatility. That's just a technical issue. But when the volatility gets too high, even though you're making a lot of money, it's unsustainable. And so that is the key to reducing your risk in that and getting rid of the stock, not because the risk reward ratio isn't good because the market's going straight up. There's no risk. But the volatility, as I said, at a certain point is unsustainable. We just did the same thing this week with Sun Power, a uh, stock in the US that was 
up 15% two or three days in a row. And even though we were profitable, we got rid of it because it's unsustainable. And maybe we'll be a few days early, maybe we'll be a week early, maybe it will keep going, but it, it doesn't seem possible. And personally, I'm quite comfortable getting rid of a stock or a futures market that is just out of control. And I'm sure crude oil has gone through this uh, process from time to time when, when it's gone up so fast and so violently that you have to be nervous that when it turns direction, you'll never be able to get out. Hmm. I think you, uh, I mean, you both both of you talk about something that is uh, really important and, and, and a topic that I have struggled with and thought about a lot through the years. In my prior life, <laughs> we were running a trend following system whereby we would um, we would still trade the portfolio that we had decided on, let's just say 50-60 markets. I do want to get into that selection of markets a bit more, Perry, but but what we would do instead is we would allocate more risk to the more profitable markets. And I can't remember if we were saying, like you, uh, Perry, we're just looking at returns and we're saying, you know, the, the top 20% or whatever the number was, I can't remember. But those that were most profitable, they were allowed to take, say, 1.25% or 1.2x of normal risk. And if they were really profitable, maybe one and a half times normal risk or something like that. Because I struggle, this is where I really struggle, Perry, and that is market selection, right? So so I have systems that I'm working on on a personal level where clearly there are some markets that don't work. Right. And, and and it kind of annoys me a little bit having to discard them because I'm a true believer in diversification. And, and I'm also a true believer is that you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So they could be the next profitable markets that we have, but they really don't work, it seems. Right. So I kind of have to take them them out. I put that in the category of over diversification. Right. Once you have 10 stocks or 10 markets in your portfolio, you're well diversified. Uh, assuming they're not all reflecting right. exactly the same. <laughs> not 10 currencies. <laughs> yes. But after that, your benefit from diversification really goes down considerably. And when you over-diversify, you're really bringing in marginal performance. And that deteriorates everything. So you have to be careful. If you can select 10 good markets, I think you are really achieving something that could be quite successful. But now I have to interrupt you, Perry, because my next question would be, aren't you just overfitting your system in some way by just selecting those 10 or 20 markets? I mean, this is the this is where overfitting of your system to certain markets where there's no guarantee that there'll be the same markets going forward. And how would you have a an ongoing selection or process for finding out whether you need to replace some of those markets, whether there are some markets that come back into the fold? Excellent question, which I will now answer. Thank you. <laughs> well, first of all, we're talking about the persistence of success under the strategy, as opposed to, as Moritz pointed out, we're not talking about the price movement right. itself. Yep. And the strategy can absorb a couple of down days and still be holding on to its position. So what I do in both my futures and my stock portfolios is I rank the 
returns of each stock and each futures market over the last 60 days. And it's a fairly short time period because markets change. Things that were trending don't trend. Things that were not trending start to trend. So you want to be reasonably sensitive about allowing markets to come in. And so you pick the top 10. Now, you re-rank this every day. And if one of those 10 stocks falls out of the top by, say, four positions, you replace it with something that has come in that is now in a higher ranking. So when you, when the underlying trend-following system may hold a position for 30 or 40 trading days, because of the ranking, you reduce your holding period to about 18 days. And so you, you may actually be getting rid of a stock or a futures market that's still making money, but it's not making money as much as another one. And I know you you said that this could be overfitting, but it seems to work because of persistence that the stocks and futures markets that are making money on your system seem to continue to make money for a surprisingly long period of time. You know, I think this is this is super interesting. I've never thought about it quite that way, and I'd, I'd love to uh, go and, and have a look at that in the way um, that, that I'm uh, looking at things. But I have a follow-up question, and that is, from an overall performance point of view, we know that even the markets that may not be the most profitable Sometimes they make the money when you most need it, meaning the correlation effect comes in, and that actually helps your overall return, staying closer to the high watermark, if we put it like that. So my question is, if we do it your way, which I'm sure you is working uh, clearly, don't you end up getting perhaps markets that are much higher correlated all the time because they all seem to be running at full cylinder at the same time, and I can imagine that they would also be maybe reversing at the same time, or more likely to reverse at the same time, potentially? Yes, actually, it's it's a very observant statement. Let's say my portfolio of stocks will be heavily in tech, or will be heavily in... Pharma? You know, yes, <laughs> it depends. Sometimes dur- during periods of... Uh, international stress, it will be in defense stocks. Right. Yes, it, it causes what you would call a high beta portfolio, much higher risk, much higher return. I'm quite comfortable with that. It's turned out that I've done this now for live with these systems for 10 years. They've never caused a real problem. I do have an extreme risk exit in my systems. And that is, if the volatility of the portfolio exceeds a certain amount in stocks, in my 10-stock portfolio, it's a 32% annualized volatility of the portfolio NAVs. Plus, the market is net down for three days. Because if the volatility is high, and it's going in my direction, I'm not so anxious to get out. But if the market turns down and the volatility is high, I bail out completely of the stock portfolio, and I wait for that trend 
to continue. The volatility has to go down, and we have to start making net profits over a few days. That has turned out to be a winning strategy for exiting on volatility. And perhaps it's because either a small stock portfolio or a small futures portfolio can be highly correlated and can develop high risk. You do need some emergency exit. So before Moritz jumps in with some other questions, I just want to stay with this for a little while longer. So let's just turn it into, I know, you know, a stock portfolio, I understand that, but let's turn it into a kind of a classical trend following futures portfolio. I would love to know, I mean, obviously we discuss on this podcast often, you know, how many markets should we trade, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, but I mean, I'm on the opinion that you shouldn't just keep adding more markets. Moritz probably wants to add a little bit more markets, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just say that there are like 60 to 70 kind of uncorrelated markets. I know some of them will be correlated, but, you know, within a 60, 70 market portfolio, you there's not a lot you can add that isn't already correlated to what you've got. So... If that's your universe, in a trend-following portfolio, how many of those markets... So I, I don't know how, how well you follow European football or soccer, as, as, as you would call it, but I, but I hope you know the concept of, you know, we have a lot, you know 11 players on the pitch and we have a bench with some reserves. So if we think about that in terms of a trading, we have the universe, which is the full squad, and we have the people or the players on the pitch, which will be the one, the models that are, or the markets that are in the live portfolio. How many of those 60, 70 markets would you actually trade at any one time, roughly? And if you do that ranking every day, as you described, would you just simply say, okay, uh, soya beans, you're out, we'll just close the position, and the euro, you're back in on the pitch, we're just going to go in and take whatever signal we had, and now you're in. Okay, well, first... Uh, I've limited my exposure to 20 or 22 of them. Mm -hmm. So I want the best 20 or 22. But sometimes I'm not going to pick anything if it's lost money over the past 60 days. Mm -hmm. So sure. those don't yeah. even qualify. Right. Then you have the issue of saying, well, perhaps the only thing making money are, are the interest rates, you know, or the FX. If only one sector qualifies, I reduce the total exposure in that sector to about 50%. So if I don't get diversification, I'm going to have to trade less. Mm. It's my only choice to keep risk down. Yeah. I do try to, as different sectors come in, if I get two sectors or three sectors, if I get three sectors, I can leverage up to full exposure. If I get two sectors, perhaps 75%. I'm trying to manage the risk in a different way, recognizing mm -hmm. the fact that, that there is, in fact, correlation in futures markets and in stocks as well. But in stocks, I don't seem to have that problem. Stocks are, even stocks that are correlated have their own personality. But in interest rates, you get an awful lot of movement that's quite the same. Yeah. So I try to keep in mind the big picture is how many sectors do I have that really provide diversification? And based on that, I will leverage up or down my total exposure. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I've never thought about designing a system like that, uh, where you essentially are trying to put the best 
players on the pitch all time. And it kind of goes away from a lot of the things that I've been brought up with in the last 30 years. And that is knowing what you don't know, meaning since we don't know what we, you know, don't know, we need to have everything and we need to trade everything equal. And and although I will say on our side, I mean, we've been doing this for 46 years uh, this year. And um, of course, on our side, we have, as as I think you describe in, in, in your work, you trade many different sets of parameters for each of these markets, right? So it's not just one market, one parameter set. And so we build up the confidence in the market's trend by having multiple systems confirming the same direction. So it's not just, you know, you're either long or you're short or you're out. How do you even, do you do that in your, in, when you have this selection process of just picking the best markets? Can you even have like, 10 different parameter sets for each market and then still do all of these selections? <laughs> I mean, it becomes um, quite an animal, so to speak. Yes, when I when I worked with Moritz some time ago, we did this uh, trend-following system that had 144 or 140-something different sets of combinations. And the idea was that you want to pick markets that perform under the trending scenario. But you really have no idea which trend calculation period, which speed is going to be the best coming up. So I am willing to to accept an average performance. So if I pick a number of different parameters from short, from slow to fast, if I have three different sets of parameters, I divide the money for that market into three parts and I trade them as though they're three different investments. Mm. And I net the positions out so that I, I still get one order at the end of the day. Sure. And in doing that, I'm willing to accept an average return of those three parameters. Or in the case when I worked with Moritz, I was willing to accept an average return of 140 combinations. But of course, you need more money sure. to divide your investment into 140 pieces. But the point is... By picking multiple parameters, uh, trying to get them across the span of calculation speeds, you're saying to yourself that I really don't know whether being having a fast system or a slow system is going to be the best next month or for the next three months. And so I'm happy to take an average. You also find that it smooths out the performance considerably. If you pick, you know, it's like trading only one futures market. You're going to have a great return or a terrible return. If you trade only one moving average, you're going to have a very good return or a not so good return. If you trade multiple ones, it smooths out the whole process. And I find that it means that the results I see from my testing are going to be very close to the results I see in real life. They're not going to be as great as you would like, but they're going to be very realistic. Yeah, I like that concept. Yeah, I I read up on that. I I really like that concept. I think that's one of the other challenges we have as system designers is it's very hard not to pick the best, so to speak. You have to be quite disciplined in in picking some bad ones, quote unquote, or not optimal (laughs) ones, let's put it that way. But uh, no, I like that. Sorry, Morris, I've been talking a lot. Uh, over to you, my friend. <laughs> it's fascinating to uh, to hear you guys talking. I mean, just um, 
strolling down that memory lane uh, with, with Perry. I think this is now 14 or 13 years ago in 2006 or 2007 when we oh, yes. together designed that system. And what's so interesting about that, Perry, is that for the most part, this is still the way that I trade today. I cannot diversify over as many time frames as we had put in that system, which is a completely institutional system with, I think 144 is probably the right number. We started with a 20 day breakout and then had a 22 day breakout and then a 24 day breakout, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way probably to a 400 or 500 day breakout. I don't remember where exactly the, what the slowest time frame was, but we traded all of those. What I'm doing is I'm no longer trading the 20, the 22 day, the 24 day. You know, those are too short term for me. Mm. You know, my statistical observations and my tests show me that the very short term timeframes don't perform as well over long time periods than the medium to long term ones. But that aside, I still think that this is, and hence I'm doing it, that this is a robust way of going about it. But isn't it fascinating that, you know, Things change. So what Perry has, what you described over the past minutes is that there is an, an edge, there is an added value or an alpha in actively selecting markets. I think that is what it comes down to, that there is persistence in system performance, good, good markets and their performance inside of the system. Let's hear what Perry has to say about these ideas. Well, it's a bit complex for me to... Uh try to determine value about whether it works or, or doesn't work. Uh, let me just mention how I measure some things that allow me to select some markets in advance. And that is using this uh, efficiency ratio that you may have read about that I talk about from time to time. It's really a measurement of the drunken sailor's walk. It's the what you look at the price movement over a certain period of time, like 10 days or 20 days, and, and you look at the, the net change over that period of time divided by the sum of the individual daily movements. And so if the market goes up every day, you're going to get a value of one, which means perfectly trending. And if the market wanders around every day, then the sum of the individual moves becomes large and the ratio goes towards zero, which means it's noisy. So if I were picking stocks or futures markets to use on a trend system, I would want the ones that had the higher ratios, which always turns out to be the interest rate markets and next the FX markets, which would be the next most trending markets. If I were doing mean reversion, I would pick the noisiest markets, which are always the equity index markets. And so a measurement like that could help you select markets that are potentially better for your strategy, whichever your strategy is. But it's a selection process. And once you pick those stocks, you don't use that measurement again. It's really for just helping you define your portfolio. So it's not nearly as sophisticated as Moritz, nor as complicated as the uh, process he's, he's talking about. I mean, I think definitely there are some markets that are more trending than others. And, and of course, now you mentioned interest rates have been 
a great market for many uh, trend followers. Interestingly enough, certainly on our side, currencies have not been great the last many years. There's no. been stock in ranges. Maybe on if you traded, you know, smaller currencies, that that's a different story. But the majors have been pretty difficult. I want to throw in a couple of other questions as well as we talk, because um, as I said, I also got questions from some of my friends uh, who, who knows Perry's work very well, and they were exceptionally excited. So so let me just throw a, a, f- a few of those in, uh, if you don't mind. And that one of them was just, you know, how do you think about profit targets? Do they work? Do they make sense? Benefits, drawbacks? Well, I think profit targets work extremely well with short-term trading, and mm-hmm. they work with short-term trading because... You have no expectation of the price continuing in the direction it's going, that in the short term, no matter what you do, prices flop around. And so if you get a nice move in your direction, you take profits. And something I learned from my wife, who is a trader, is that I take profits in three parts. So because you don't want to hang your head on a single price and hold your breath, hoping that it gets there. So I break down the uh, position into three equal parts, and I take it where the average of those three profit targets comes to the number that I want. And so I'll start with that center number by saying, okay, this is the profit I expect to get based on volatility. And then I'll pick something lower and something higher on either side. The nice thing about having three parts is that when you take off the first part and pocket that money, you're reducing your risk. When you take off the second part, it's going to be impossible to turn a profit into a loss. Mm. And so I find that that's the way to take profits, but doesn't work for trend following. Trend following is by its nature, a long-term process and trend following success hinges on what we call the fat tail. You're not going to be profitable in the long term unless you can get those moves that just keep going, like interest rates, you know, like Tesla, like Amazon, like Apple. And so if you take profits, you're not in there for the long term. And that can be a disaster. And so if you're a profit taker, you need a reentry rule. And now you've made the system more complicated. And I have developed a couple of very successful reentry rules, but none of them come up to be the final profits as high as just staying with the position. They may make you feel better. You're out of the market a little bit. When you're out of the market, you avoid certain unexpected risk. But in the long term, it's not a good policy. Now, the same thing is true for stop losses. If you put a a stop loss on a a long-term trend system and you get out before the trend has turned, you've also eliminated the possibility of capturing the fat tail. So if the market turns and goes back in the direction you wanted it, you're out of the market. And that's, that's also not good. So with a stop loss, you also need a re-entry method. And I'm just saying that you can find one, but it's going to be more complicated 
and ultimately the results are not going to be as good. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it, in having to endure that extra pain, perhaps, and uncertainty, you probably, as you say, you do get rewarded in the long run, even though the long run can be a very long time before mm-hmm. you see that reward. But but I agree with that. I had a really good question lined up for you, Perry, but now I've forgotten it. So I'll just move <laughs> on to other things that springs to mind. Yeah, now I know what it was. So I think, and this is just, I could get it completely wrong, so correct me if I did, but I think you talk about the idea that the more mature a market becomes, and I'm going to say mature also means liquid, the more kind of noisy it becomes, the less the less ideal it becomes for trend following kind of thing. If that's kind of correct, it, it, it is it, a little bit surprising to me a couple of things. One, the it's most count, successful. It, I'm sorry, most, it's count, counterintuitive, isn't it? It is. Well, exactly, because the most successful firms uh, that's been around for a long time, they ha- they need the liquidity because, because of their size. So they trade all these markets mostly, which means they, they're not trading the best markets if you think about it from a trend-following point of view. And then at the same time, when I look at our own attributions, some of these very liquid markets like fixed income has been the best. Right, so it's it that it was a really hard concept for me to work my head around when I, when I read that. Well, I'm going to give you an answer that looks like the TV personalities that explain how the market action yesterday really happened. Right, you know, it's they, good. it's it's really easy to explain what happened yesterday and and make it sound as though you're really smart. So that's the approach I'm going to take with this. It, it is counterintuitive, but but I proved it to myself, so I'm quite satisfied that it's it's true. And the way I see it is when a, when a new market comes on, an emerging market starts trading an index, it has very low participation. A lot of that participation are commercials, and all of these people have the same opinion on the market. Obviously, they talk to each other. And so you'll find that the market will have an unusual number of upward moves in a row and then downward moves in a row. And that is a lack of noise in the market. That's Mm -hmm. when I measure it using my efficiency ratio, it'll show that it's a highly trending market. But now we start to, the, the market matures and you start to get retail investors, people with either trading for fun or investing their own money and they take money in they take money out of their account to buy a home or to buy a car and they put money in at random intervals because their investment program requires that they they add money once a month or once a quarter they're all at odd times and so all this really makes noise in the market there's no logic to when they're coming in and out. And it just, there's a surge of buying, a surge of selling. Funds that uh, handle retirement accounts have certain times of the month when they are obligated to add and and uh, redeem money. So that's my only after-the-fact analysis. The more people that come into the market, the more reasons there are to add and take away and join. And and they're not all logical. They're 
They're motivated by exogenous uh, factors. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I mean, there's certainly been a lot of people out this year talking about that we've seen in the last couple of years where, quote-unquote, classical trend following has maybe not done so well. Then these alternative market trend followers have done better. You know, is that random or I don't know? But there's certainly been a lot of talk about it. So I, I completely get the concept. But then again, when I look at our own attribution, so I see, well, the most liquid sectors in the world is actually the best performing ones and has been for a, for a while now. So in a sense, again, comes back to the point about diversification, why that is important. So yeah, it's super interesting. Well, I do agree. Bonds, interest rates have always been the best performing sector in futures markets for 30, 40 years. So it is true. I don't know how to explain. I guess the, sure. the fundamentals just are so strong that they overwhelm everything else. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. One of the things, another question that we get a lot, at least in the press, at least, they love to talk about trend following being dead after a uh, if after a period of time of of subpar performance and and I guess this is what we can see in the last five years where there has been very little performance in the trend in the classical trend following sector. I know that trend following is very close to your heart, uh, even though you've researched and and written about many different strategies. Is there a good way for you to describe why you think trend following? quote unquote, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but why it will never die, so to speak, but just go through some rough patches, which all strategies do? Um, not an easy question to answer. I guess the economy is what drives the trends. The biggest trends, the ones we're, we're most interested in following, which are which starts at the bond market, and the bond market is is driven by central bank policy. And the central bank, as we discussed earlier, tries to dampen growth when it's too fast by raising interest rates and encourage growth when it's slow by lowering interest rates. It does it incrementally, so it will lower rates by a quarter of a point and see if uh, if that does what it's supposed to do. And if it doesn't, it'll lower it again, lower it again. And it can take six months or a year of manipulation. And those trends in the interest rate markets usually gravitate into the Forex markets because money tends to flow to those countries with the highest interest rates. And so interest rate policy definitely affects Forex, even though it may not look it at the moment that the forex markets are doing very little, but that's the general principle, and we're really looking at the long term in this. Now, the the one caveat in this whole thing is even though trends will continue and there will be long-term trends, there is more noise in the market. And because there's more noise in the market, it takes longer for a trend-following system to identify a change in trend. So you're going to be getting into the trend later and getting out later. And so the piece that you're going to be able to extract from 
a, a trend-following system will be smaller, but it will be there, and it will keep changing. And you may have to adjust certain items in your portfolio or certain leverage to do it. But that's that's my opinion. Looking back at the way things work, trends are still there. There are shorter-term trends. That is, forex tends to have shorter-term, shorter periods of trending than interest rates. Most other markets are really, what what appears to be trends are usually shifts in supply-demand. Crude oil is probably the most extreme example. You can make money at it. The trends are much faster because you're really targeting on supply and demand. In the agricultural markets, you also have to have shorter time periods because you're trying to take advantage of a seasonal move, and a seasonal move may only last for three months. So if you use a long-term moving average for soybeans or for corn or for wheat, you're going to wind up with the rate of inflation rather than capture an actual move in those markets. So to capture a move that may be three months in the agricultural markets, you're going to have to use a moving average that's closer to 20 days. Another question, I mean, I could keep doing this for a while today because <laughs> I've got so many questions for you, Perry, that, that we've come across, but also that just pops up over the years. And, and another thing that, that that is clear from the data, but I don't know that I have a good explanation. I have my own views on it, but I would much rather hear your views. And that is when you run a traditional classical trend following strategies, again, let's just say across 50 markets, and you look at the return distribution, you find that most of the performance came from the long-sided trades, not the short trades or short-sided trades. Is that your uh, observation as well? And have you any uh, thought about why that is? Well, yes, it is my observation. In fact, for the most part, I don't trade the short side of equity markets. Right. Because if you're using a long-term trend system, you'll find that the Declines in the equity markets are very violent and not so long-lived, so that by time your long-term trend gets short, the move is a third over, maybe more. And then by time you get out, you've lost a third or half of the bottom. There's really very little opportunity to, to net a profit in it. Mm. You would need some other type of strategy to deal with that. So I don't trade those. Most futures markets have gone up in price. Unfortunately, grains are not those markets. The sad point about it is that the farmers have gotten so good at technology and hybrid corn that no matter what the weather conditions are, by the end of the year, they have a bumper crop. So uh, you'll find that on a inflation-adjusted basis, the price of corn and wheat have declined over 20, 30 years, which is unfortunate unfortunate for the farmers. It would be nice if they could participate. Well, you have the softs, you have, you know, you have the softs, you have the meats, you have the metals. Yes. Let's, let's, so let's talk about the metals because they are probably the next biggest sector. And of course you see gold has now gone back towards its previous highs. So, 
there's no doubt that if you were on the long side only of gold, you would be better positioned. I guess inflation is part of the economy. And inflation means that being long is always going to be safer than being short. I've actually tried to create systems that had different timing on the short side than the long side, so that you could try to capture a a faster, shorter move to the downside. But there's no way to coordinate that with a longer position, a slower position to the long side. They just, they clash with each other. I hope somebody could figure out how to do that, but I, I can't. Yeah, no, I take your point. I've always thought about the the reason for being, because there's a couple of interesting observations, by the way, and this is, of course, relative, but the thing that we think about commodities, you know, always going up in price over time because of inflation. But actually, I saw a chart just this morning, which is super interesting. And I really forget, I, I apologize for forgetting who that, you know, should it be attributed to, because I think this is a really interesting chart. So they had done a chart of commodity, so the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index going back 100 years versus the Dow Jones. And there's never, you know, the, the, the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index has never been so low in price over that 100 years as it is now compared to the to the Dow, right? So commodities versus financial assets. So I think that's interesting and maybe at some point we're going to get some inflation back and we're going to see rising commodity prices, which I actually um, wrote this morning to to our clients that I think maybe that will be good news for trend-following systems because, and then going back to to the point about why is it that we make more money on the upside or the long side, I've always felt that finding a top in the market is a process, but finding a bottom is an event. It happens like one day. <laughs> and and so back to your point, it is much harder for these trend-following systems if you apply the same parameters to extract the profits from the short-sided trades. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't trade the short side. I can, I fully understand your point about the stocks, but on the other hand, there has been some crises along the way where it, you know, you could have made some money on stocks, but it obviously may not pay for all the times where you get these false negative breakouts and nothing happens and we go straight back to new highs. Yes. Well, just two points. First, when we were talking about long or short, clearly the interest rate markets are a long only market that has been very little profit to be made on the short side of it. So again, you could choose to be biased to the long side, even though I don't think the short side hurts you so much there. But let's go back to 2008. If you were trading the futures market in the S&P, you made 50% on the short side. And it brought out the, the concept of crisis alpha. Do you remember? I don't know if you're familiar with the term. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. I wrote a book with Katie Kaminsky who oh. coined that phrase. So, oh, yes. <laughs> I, there you are. Yes, that was it. And of course... 2008 was the perfect example. You made a ton because you could not only be short, but you're leveraged on the short side. And that's really what makes the difference. You would not have made nearly as much money by just shorting the S&P as a SPY, fully invested product. But since then, it hasn't produced anything. That the downsides that we've seen 
We had one in December to January a year ago. It was too fast to capture. And this most recent one also looked as though there was a lot of potential, but it hasn't really captured enough to be worth anything. So it, it's a case of theory versus reality. Yeah. So I do have systems that trade the short side of the S&P, but on the trend following, long-term trend following systems that I use, I do not trade the short side of the equity index markets or the short side of the bonds. So I, I'm sure at some point inflation will take over, interest rates will go up, but it's not happening in the foreseeable future. Sure. Mortz, you've been awfully quiet today. What's on your mind? Well, where do I want to go? I mean, maybe maybe one thing, because you spoke about diversification, or we, we actually spoke about diversification quite a bit, but the question is, in trend-following trading systems, most traders tend to trade the equity indices, which is a basket of stock, right? So somebody, some firm, the S&P, the S&P firm, Standard & Poor's or MSCI or Deutsche Börse or whoever it is, right? They, they decide what the basket of stocks is going to be and you know, how it's going to rebalance over time and which stocks to include and which to exclude. And you know, by, by, by trading that basket, we you know, may be giving up a lot of diversification potential. That is a, an interesting topic that we discussed with, uh, with Jerry many times. It's like, you know, what we could do is instead of trading the indices in the trend-following system, we could break it up and trade the single stocks, right, and gain more diversification benefit because, you know, there would be something like a Tesla and uh, Ford and uh, Procter & Gamble and, you know, Exxon and, you know, different companies from all over the world that would behave in different ways at different points in time. And therefore, trend following those, let's say long and short, and not long only, but long and short, should produce a better result, a better outcome than training the equity indices. What's your view of that? Oh, I do agree. I would prefer individual stocks. I disagree with the short part of that. <laughs> I mean, there, there are some notable things. I would have liked to have been short Enron when it disappeared and a few other stocks. But I think when you look at the broad range of stocks, I think there's a gigantic bias to the upside. Yeah. So over the long run, this is, this is what we see. But I think we see it biased through a lens of equity indices, which have a massive survivorship bias, right? Because they kick out the stocks that are on their way to death that are on their way to zero. They no longer qualify for index inclusion because their market cap becomes too little, their liquidity becomes too little, that, that and the other thing. I mean, matter of fact, when we use these point-in-time databases and we look at you know, all sorts of stocks, most of them are no longer in existence, either because they go bankrupt or because they emerge or because you know some other capital event happens to them. So I think when you consider this, I mean, or put differently, when we only look at the at today's data, then we can only see the stocks that lift today. I'm pretty sure they have that upward bias, right? And you would be, it would be very easy to say, well, let's only do the long only side for the stocks. But if you include all the stocks that have gone to zero, all the graveyard stocks, 
it becomes less clear. That would be true. Of course, that goes against the way I'm selecting stocks for my portfolio, which is by performance. You're right. The short side of stocks, however, is much more difficult to trade. Correct. And and does and does cost more because you have to borrow it. That is the caveat, obviously, sorry to interrupt. And it becomes, I presume it may become even more difficult now that an exchange, one Chicago, is closing its doors. Uh, they were preeminent provider of liquidity and single stock futures contracts, and they will close down their business, which means, you know, there's only Eurex, and I think there's one exchange in Asia that still has these contracts on their menu. And like you say, if you then wanted to short stock, you would have to have the right broker, you would have to locate the stock, pay the borrow, et cetera, et cetera, right? Then the stock may be called away from you at a time when you really want to have it. And it's not that easy. I completely get it. But like I say, if we do it the way you, you, you say, where you say, you know, you rank stocks anyway by their performance before they are allowed to enter the portfolio, then it's a mute discussion. But if, you know, there's traders out there that go like, well, I don't want to restrict my portfolio in that way. I'll just look at everything that's out there. And I want to trade them long and short in the same way in order to increase the sample size of my system. Then that discussion isn't muted. And there may be a very good reason to include short-sided trades in your portfolio. Sometimes the correlation benefit that I get just from, you know, having short-sided trades on is, is, is very powerful. I can't argue with that. I, I think it's an it's an option for people, but I'm I'm just not doing that. You know, my biggest portfolio has thirty stocks, all based on long side performance, and I pick from five hundred stocks yes. that I track, and and that seems to work. I don't know the people that are listening probably want something simpler rather than more complicated picking stocks on the long side that are performing well on your system, I think is a simpler approach. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, I was just going to say, I, I have one question for you, Moritz, and one more question for Perry, if you don't mind. Um, I, I want to re be respectful of Perry's time, but uh, no, I wanted to ask you more. It's actually something. So, so listening to the conversation today, Clearly, you and Perry has known each other for a long time. You've worked together. You've designed systems together. As Perry explained, you've helped this concept about volatility stabilization, which I think of when I hear it explained as, as volatility targeting that we often talk about. But knowing what I know about how you trade today, Moritz, you've, and I also, I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I'm, I'm guessing that, that Perry's work has, you know, had, had a great deal of influence in your way of thinking about these things and developing systems. But but I also see that you've gone, as far as I can tell, in some other directions in terms of, like we do on our side, we trade everything equal. We don't do this ranking of, of the best markets, et cetera, et cetera. You don't like volatility targeting in your own portfolio, so to speak. Tell me a little bit about how you've sort of taken all this information of and why you've made the choices that you've made in, in, in your trading. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to explain that. When we did the vol stabilization or the volatility targeting, which really is the same thing, it volatility controls a portfolio relative to its historical returns on a daily basis. When we did that, I was working at RBS at the time, Perry was in the US, and we designed a system that 
we wanted to put on the bank's platform for essentially structured derivative products. We wanted to give investors an opportunity to essentially buy a capital-protected product, a capital-protected note issued by the RBS Bank, that tracked the performance of the system. So what that means is the bank would need to combine what's essentially a zero-coupon bond and a call option on that system. And in order to hedge and replicate that option, it would need to be at a certain level of volatility. Because there's no market for, there's no Vega market out there in order to, you know, hedge volatility exposures on these type of dynamic trading systems. So we needed to volatility control it to a target level in order to, you know, be able to price that option. And this is how this started. Now, it turned out that, and I think this is Paris' observation, the ongoing volatility control mechanism resulted in more stable, not only more stable, but also better performance, I think, is what we heard at the very beginning of that discussion. And then, you know, I, I took that and, you know, we can see that in the data, but I also observed something else in the data. And that is that, you know, if I'm willing to accept a more dynamic volatility than process, right? So I, I'm, I'm not too fussed about the thing being at like 15% all the time, right? I'm very happy with sometimes being at 20% and sometimes being at 12% and fluctuating around these, these levels. What does that do? It, it means that I don't have to do these volatility adjustment trades. So it saves commission, saves exchange and clearing fees and brokerage fees. It saves bid offer and it does potentially save slippage. And that is definitely something that is on the positive side. It doesn't produce as much cost. You're saving that cost. I mean, that's for sure. It's only costs and taxes, right? <laughs> and then what I also found out is that a lot of the additional performance from that leveraging dynamic was solely due to leveraging up the fixed income complex of those trades, of that portfolio. And, and I didn't want that. I didn't want to have a too skewed exposure to one area of the portfolio. And then to top it off, when I looked into my return statistics, and you know, those are simple things such as number of winners, number of losers, win percentage, loss percentage, you know, these type of things, but you know, also average loss and average gain. I found that all these volatility control trades, when I separate them from my system trades, like the true system trades that are driven by entries and exits, when I separate them and I put them into a, um, into a separate bucket, I found that they increased my average loss. And this is, this is the key reason why I stepped away from a rigid volatility, ongoing volatility control process and decided that I am okay to accept a more fluctuating volatility dynamic of my portfolio. And again, you know, like we've said at the beginning, there is in, in all of these disciplines and all of the things that we're talking about today, there is no black or white and no right or wrong. You know, this is essentially a risk management choice, a position sizing choice. And different traders have different opinions on, you know, how they want to run their portfolio. At the end of the day, you need to be comfortable with what it is that happens in front of your eyes. Because if you are not, then I can almost guarantee you that at some point you will stop trading because you feel dissatisfied or, you know, you throw in the towel when there is a small loss or a larger loss. 
And that is the, the most hurtful thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be too, too cute about, oh, you, you, you know, I, I'm not saying switch off your volatility control systems, everybody out there, right? I mean, it may have actually an impact on the market that at some point I may come to enjoy. But the important thing is whatever people do with that initial building block of risk and position sizing, which is so important, it must be done in a way that allows you to follow the system for a longer period of time. And in the case of trend following, as you know, Perry was so uh, rightly saying, it is a very long-term dynamic. This is not a short-term trading system where you have a three-day profit target and you close your position. You really need to have the patience to let these trends develop. And those are weeks and months and sometimes years. So you need to have a system that you can really stick with for a long period of time and step away from it and don't question it all the time. And this is only true if you have found something that you're satisfied with. And if this includes volatility control, well, then so be it. And that's your thing. For me, I know what it is. I've decided to switch that element, that potential component of my system off. And I feel happier about it that way. But that's me. <laughs> yes. No, no, it's fascinating. And, and the same, if I just wanted to you know, say that, because and, and probably then it's a good time to, to wrap this up. Over time, you, I think every everybody develops a couple of of like cornerstones and, and, and your key components of, let's say, trading philosophy. Things that you're more and more unwilling to negotiate about, <laughs> and maybe that stubbornness in old age. But the one thing that I that I feel absolutely unwilling to give up is my view on diversification. And I know you've mentioned over-diversification and over-diversification, right? And we read about this. And don't put too many markets in your portfolio because it tends to, you know, move the focus away from the stuff that works, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I get that logic. I, you know, I, I see, I can understand it, what it is that you're saying. But at the same time, I do know that, yes, after the 18th or 19th or 20th market, that you're adding to the portfolio, the additional diversification benefit that you get from the 21st and the 22nd market and so on mathematically is declining. That is a given. It is a mathematical certainty that that will happen. And yet the benefit is not zero because we can find markets that are not perfectly correlated to one another and perfect means one. And that to me means that as long as I can find a market whose correlation is not one to all the other ones I have in the portfolio. It is no longer a free lunch, but it's still a free snack. It's a little free snack that the market offers me, which I can yield, which I can exploit. And it doesn't cost me anything to do that. And it is on that position that I really want to be, at least for me, steadfast and say, no, 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 no. This is a free goodie. That's mine. I'll take it. And, you know, the way I think about it is the more of these things I have in my portfolio, I know I'm already diversified, but yes, I'm adding the 101th market to the portfolio. Great. It could really be that that one market that you guys don't have, which I have, is the one that really has the rock star performance next year. And I'm unable to forecast that. And therefore, by the law of large numbers, I want to roll as many dies as I possibly can and one of them will hopefully be sticking. So, like I say, that's just me. 
No, I'd love to hear what... I mean, I still have one question left for Perry, but I'd love to hear Perry's uh, response to that point about <laughs> diversification. Well, I can't really object to adding that 21st or 22nd item if the returns of that are comparable to the rest of the portfolio. But my contention is that those added items have lower returns. Otherwise, they would have been in the first group of choices. Now, I don't know, maybe you can find 100, 100 markets that have equal potential for return that that have not the same correlation. I just would rather pick the ones with the higher returns because I'm going to out, I'm trying to outperform the market. I can't uh, live with the idea that my returns are the same as just buying the S&P and sticking with it. I have to do better than that. And so I need markets that are going to return more than the S&P. And I'm willing to manage the risk of that in other ways. So that's my only objection to large-scale diversification. You see, Niels, this this is why when Perry and I meet in person, you know, these dinners over two bottles of good wine, they <laughs> they tend to be so enjoyable and last so long because, you know, you there's so much to talk about. Yes. I want to be part of those dinners. I, I they, they sound fascinating and, and tasty. Oh, by the time we're done with drinking, we really don't care who's right. So <laughs> <laughs> that, That's a good outcome then. Absolutely. <laughs> now, Perry, my final question really is that in terms of ongoing research, now you talked about volatility stabilization. I think we've talked enough about that today. But I, I do wonder... In terms of kind of newer discoveries that you've found, I mean, obviously you've been doing this for a very long time, but in kind of, say, the last five or ten years, have there been some new discoveries about trend following that you've found where you kind of a little bit of an aha moment, um, kind of, oh, I wish I knew that 40 years ago when I got started. I mean, something that you, I mean, at the end of the day, can we still find really better ways of doing trend following or do you think we've discovered most of it by now? Well, I think the idea of using multiple parameters in order to make your expected return, your actual return similar to your expected return is important so that you've smoothed out things, your expectations are more realistic. But I've been doing that now for a while. The only thing that I have added to my trend systems in the last year is this extreme risk control because the market seems to require that you pay attention to risk even more so more so than just reducing your risk when it becomes too you know when the volatility of your portfolio becomes high you have this possibility of everything turning against you because even though you're trading uncorrelated markets in many cases. Money is what moves the market. And when there's a crisis, people take their money out of the market. It makes no, it makes no importance whether the market is going up or down, whether they're in fine art or in any other tangible investment. They want their cash. And so they're going to liquidate their assets and that's going to reverse all the markets at the same time. 
cause the correlations to go to one. So we have that scenario. And the question is, how do you protect yourself against it? And the only way I have been able to do is say, these, these markets seem to be premised on high, an increase in volatility first. So we're under a scenario of much higher than normal volatility. And then you get a downside shock. At that point, I bail out. That seems to, I've had three occasions of doing that this year, three times. That's remarkable. And they've all been very successful. In some cases, I didn't actually save any money, but I was out of the market and I greatly reduced the risk. So in two cases, I came out ahead and did not lose money. But in all three cases, I greatly reduced my exposure, which I think is important. Yeah, that's a big part of what we do is to manage the risk, as we've talked about a lot today. I want to... I'll come back and thank you properly. We we normally at this stage before we wrap up, Perry, we talk a little bit about what actually happened in the in in the in the performance of of our industry during the uh, you know the last week and so. So let me quickly run through that. We have the B top fifty index uh, down about fifteen basis points for the month of October, down one point three sorry one point five three percent. For the year 2020, we have the SOCGEN CTA index up 20 bips for the month of October, down 3.2% for the year. SOCGEN trend index up 15 basis points so far in October, down almost 2% though for the year. The SOCGEN short-term traders index is down 22 basis points in uh, October, but still up 2% for the year. Then we have this long-named SOCGEN multi-alternative risk premium index down 65 basis points so far, but down 13 and three quarters in 2020. On the other hand, we have the stocks. They were up. MSCI uh, World was up 3.4% so far this uh, month, up uh, almost 4% for the year. And the uh, World Government Bond Index uh, is down a little bit this month, 16 basis points. Perry, it's still Saturday morning, your time. Thank you ever so much for for hanging out with us. This has been a true pleasure. We really appreciate it. I know all our listeners will do as well. And it's been um, absolutely as uh, thought-provoking and inspirational as it is to read your books. So it's been a real treat. Oh, thank you. I also appreciate it. And it's always nice to see Moritz again. We, we're we getting back into our, our adversarial positions here, <laughs> but on a friendly basis. Sure. I wanted to, um, I said I had one line. I said I didn't have any more questions for you. It's not quite true. I wanted <laughs> if you could let our listeners know maybe a book or two that you didn't write that you <laughs> thought was um, interesting, worthwhile, um, something that um, kind of what you said, yeah, that was something that really helped me in my thought process. Well, oddly enough, my favorite book is by a German author. Dietrich Dorner, you probably know, or you might know. I probably should. It's called The The Logic of Failure. It's not quite new, but it's a book on how to think ahead, Mm -hmm. how to do some long-term modeling. It's a very interesting book. It's done with a, a computer model where they take, say, 20 top executives, they give them a country in uh in Africa that they have complete control over, 
and they're supposed to improve the quality of life. And you need to see the logic that goes into this planning. And there's a lot to learn from a book that does not deal directly with markets, but deals with the thought process. And and mm. that's one of my favorite books. Fantastic. That's a great, great suggestion, great resource. I have to include that in my next version of uh, the guide to the ultimate investment books <laughs> that I do. Maybe once a year I update that one. So uh, So I appreciate that. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope that you all have enjoyed it. And and please make sure you go and check out uh, Paris' latest books. Make sure you keep the questions coming. Sorry for not taking so many today. In fact, some of the questions I had was from our listeners, but um, do keep them coming. Info at toptradersonplug.com is the email to send them to, and we'll be back in our usual flow next week, catching up on questions. And of course, If you like what you heard today, we certainly wouldn't mind a rating and review in iTunes. That always helps. And for those who may not know, a five-star rating is better than a (laughs) one-star. So uh, feel free to uh, indulge yourself. From Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. 